Well, good morning. It's a blessing to be with you on Palm Sunday. It's crazy how fast this stuff sneaks up. Like, it comes so quick. Ash Wednesday happens. Like, ah, I got seven with six weeks. And then it's here. And, and here we are. And it's great. We only have a few weeks left in our series, Living the Gospel. This series has taken us through the Gospel of John. Kind of a, a pretty quick, like we didn't hit every verse. But uh, a lot of the chapters we got something out of anyway. Now, as we've briefly touched on earlier, John had no interest in writing his gospel in a chronological order. He just wasn't concerned with that, which is fine, and that's cool. He's allowed to write his gospel however he wants to, even though it can be a bit confusing for us here in the present day, trying to sort through all of the the different things that John decided to do. So last week, we were in chapter 16 of John's gospel. This week, we're taking a few steps back into chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 16. In this passage, we see the events that lead up to the celebrating of Palm Sunday, or as they take place. Jesus and his disciples had just been visiting his friend Lazarus. Now, it's a bit of a short visit because Lazarus was dead when they got there. Jesus had a particular hankering to speak to his friend, however, and so Jesus raised him from the dead. This, understandably, got word moving pretty quickly, and soon a crowd formed, and word began to spread about this man that raised people from the dead, and that's where we will pick up with our text this morning. Again, we're in John chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 12 to 16. If you have your Bibles with you, great. If not, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you, or if you'd rather just follow along with the words on the screens, that is totally cool. We read the word of the Lord together this morning, John 12, 12 to 16. The next day, the great crowd that had come from the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Let's end the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. It was May 19th, 1999, and I was in line at the movie theater with a few of my cousins and my dad. We were at Northgate Mall, just just a little north of Seattle, Washington. This movie theater only had one screen, but it was the biggest screen I'd ever seen. Like, it was huge. It was just one theater dedicated to one particular screen, and I was brimming with excitement. Like, I I I could barely keep it in. I'd been a Star Wars fan for as long as I could remember. Han Solo was my guy. I I even had a crush on a girl in elementary school simply because her name was Leia. My parents had had taped the first movie, A New Hope, and, and the third movie, Return of the Jedi, onto VHS, and I'd sit in the basement and about wear those VHS tapes out on our 13 inch tube TV. Every stick was either a lightsaber or a blaster. And I didn't care which. 
I'd borrow Star Wars novels from the library so I could consume more of that world, get lost in the world of the Force, Jedi, bounty hunters and smugglers and battles between light and dark. Return of the Jedi had come out the year that I was born, 1983. It had been 16 years since a new Star Wars movie had graced the silver screen, and I couldn't be more excited to be in line to see episode one, Phantom Menace, on opening night. Expectations were incredibly high, through the roof. I'd waited my whole life for this. I was gonna, it, was, it was gonna be fantastic, right? Like this movie was gonna be really good, right? I only had to wait 16 years to find out more about the story that had such a large impact on my life. The people lining the streets of Jerusalem, palm branches in hand, and the words Hosanna on their lips had waited generations. He was finally here. Their grandparents, 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 you get the idea, grandparents had been hearing about this day. It had been 300 years since the last of the prophets. They knew that they were God's people and that they knew about the promises made to Abraham and to David and all the heroes of their history, but things had been quiet for quite some time. And that time had not been peaceful. They were a conquered people. The Romans had come in and taken power. They weren't free. They saw themselves under the boot of the oppressor. They were cheated out of money. Their sacred places were occupied and defaced. They clung to the promises of old, but they did not know when those promises would come to reality. Some had begun to give up. Some had falsely assumed the, the title of Savior for themselves, only to be shown for the frauds that they were. How are the people to know when the true Savior, the one that was promised, how are they to know when he would be coming? Where was the one that would set them free? Where was the one that would throw off the yoke of the oppressor? Where was the one that would liberate them from the Romans and give them their country back, a country of their own? They didn't know. They hadn't been given a time for his arrival. They were just given signs and told to wait. Look for these signs and then you'll know. And so wait they did for they had nothing else that they could do. And then slowly but persistently rumors began to matriculate. Stories about a man from Nazareth who was doing wonderful things, performing amazing signs, signs that were supposed to only be attributed to the one who would save them, the one who was promised. This man was healing the sick. Leprosy could not stand against him. He was causing the lame to walk and, and the blind to see. He was casting out demons. He was teaching in the synagogues and the church, church leaders were astounded by the insight that this man had, the wisdom that this man displayed. True, he was challenging the religious leaders and that was worrisome. But look at all the other things that he was doing. He was feeding crowds of people. There were rumors that this dude could walk on water, that the winds and the waves obeyed his words. Crowds were, were following him. And then just recently, the biggest sign of them all, he had just raised a man from the dead. This had to be him. He was here. He was going to save them, just like their old favorite King David wrote in Psalm 118 in his Erling read for us earlier, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
As the realization of the coming king spread through the crowds, they began to prepare to welcome him to the city of Jerusalem. They stood by the sides of the road calling Hosanna, which means protect us or save us. They went out and they grabbed palm branches, symbols of triumph and victory, and they they waved them and placed them at the feet of this man who entered into their city on the back of a young donkey. Which had to confuse them a little, right? I mean, yeah, the prophecies talk about that, we get it, but that's just further proof that this is their guy. But this man who is going to restore them to the power they had once been, the man who is going to save them, the man who is going to throw off the yoke of the Romans, came riding a baby donkey? Where was the army? Where were the trumpets? Where was the bannerman? How was he planning to accomplish all that they expected him to accomplish? I mean, this guy had just been performing crazy miracles. The wind and the waves obeyed him. He had power over sickness. He had power over death. So maybe he didn't need an army. Maybe he didn't need chariots, swords, and spears to free the people. He could just say things. And like the sight to a blind man, their land, their hopes, their history, and their future would be restored to them. What force could stop him? What could possibly keep him from doing all that had been promised? Their expectations for Jesus were, understandably, high. What are our expectations of Jesus? Our expectations cover a range of things, don't they? We've all heard and and sometimes wondered ourselves about how if God is actually good and loving, then why do hard things exist in the world? Why do people hunger? Why is there sickness? Why does what's good for you taste gross and what's bad for you taste so good? Why does privilege exist? Why are some people born in poor countries and other people born into affluence? Why isn't life fair? Why is there injustice? Why is there oppression? If we can recognize right from wrong, then, then doesn't God? And if he does, why, why doesn't he fix it? Maybe our questions are more personal. Hey, I, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I, I believe that he is who he says he is and that he did what he says he did. How come my life hasn't gotten easier? Doesn't being a Christian mean that things go a little easier for me? I mean... I understand at a fundamental level that God loves everyone, but since I'm at least reciprocating that love in my own ways, doesn't that mean something? Doesn't that mean I get a little better treatment? Yeah, we have expectations of Jesus. We have expectations of God, don't we? And quite often, our expectations align with things that we want, not things that God has promised. And what happens when our expectations aren't met? There's a movie out by the name of Fanboys. In it, a group of friends are Star Wars fanatics, and they are super excited to see episode one when it releases. However, one of the friends is diagnosed with a particularly devastating form of cancer. He's going to die before the movie is released, and this, this can't happen. So the group figures out that George Lucas, the creator and director of the movie, has a copy of the whole film at his house, the Skywalker Ranch. They hatch a scheme to break into the ranch and steal the film so that their friend can watch it before he passes. Now, this movie is pretty terrible. 
I, I don't advise watching it. But there's a line at the end of the movie that has stuck with me. They go through all of these shenanigans and they get caught. But George has mercy on their friend and allows him to watch the movie alone under the strictest of promises that he won't spoil it for anyone. And as the rest of the friends walk away from the ranch, one turns to the other and asks, what if the movie's terrible? I remember walking out of that theater in 1999 wanting to like that movie so badly. Man, did I want to like that movie. And for a couple of months, I convinced myself that I did. But as I thought about it more and more, I I actually just got mad. Though I wanted to like the movie, it left me feeling betrayed. There had been so much buildup, so much anticipation. And for what? Poor acting? Bad writing? A pod racing scene and a fantastic villain who ultimately felt underused or wasted? An incredibly awkward romance and some fish dude that I could barely understand? How could this be Star Wars? How could this be what I had been waiting so long for? This wasn't my Star Wars. I'm going to go back to appreciating the older version. Maybe I'll just forget that this new version even exists because it can't be real. Can it? I can't help but wonder if that's where the crowd was left after Jesus entered the city. There was over 300 years of buildup for this moment. And what did he do? He entered the city on a baby donkey and then he went and found some place to eat. He didn't storm the castle. He didn't overthrow the Romans. Those guys are still out there extorting us for tax money and patrolling the streets. What was your plan here, Jesus? To take the accolades and do nothing with them? You were supposed to save us. You were supposed to bring us victory. Where are you now? Why have you not done what was promised. We must have got it wrong. This can't be the guy. This can't be the one who has come to save. This this dude, his 12 followers, a bunch of women and some others who just go places with him? How could we have ever felt like this guy was going to be the one? How did we talk ourselves into that? And on some level, we get it, right? We all have times where things don't go the way that we think that they're supposed to go. There was all the opportunity in the world for God to show himself in the ways that we expect him to, and he didn't. He doesn't. So how can he be this God of love that he claims to be if he doesn't have the ability to act here on earth in the ways that we expect him to? Then how can we be sure he'll have the power to act the way that we want him to in eternity? If he can't defeat the evil that we see around us here today, then how can we be sure that he was ever able to truly defeat evil? How can we trust in the promises that he has made when we don't see him active in the ways that we want him to be active, the ways that we feel like he should be active? The next time that we see a crowd in Jerusalem, they aren't waving palm branches and calling out, Hosanna. No, the next time we see them, they are calling, crucify him, crucify him. Instead of praising him as one who has promised, they are calling for his blood. But that was the plan all along, wasn't it? 
We call Jesus' approach into Jerusalem the triumphal entry. We title it this, even though we know that Jesus was going to his death, how could that be classified as a triumph? Because ultimately, God is not as concerned with our expectations as he is with our restoration. Our world is a broken place. Could we argue that God and his almighty power can fix it with a word? Absolutely. And one day he will. One day all will be set right. One day all will be put back together. One day hunger will be no more. One day violence will have no purpose. One day injustice will be conquered. One day all will be restored. Are we ready for that day? Are we ready for the day when God will set all right again? Because here's the deal, when all of the darkness, all of the brokenness in the world is dealt with, that means the darkness and the brokenness inside us will be dealt with as well. Are we ready to face the heat of God's cleansing fire? I hope so. I pray so. But there's only one way that we can survive that fire. There's only one way we last. The only way we survive the fire of God's justice is if we are covered with the robes of Christ's righteousness. You see, God wants to have a lasting and eternal relationship with each of us. That's why Jesus came to earth. That's why Christmas is such a huge deal. And that's why what we are celebrating today and will be, and will be celebrating the rest of the week, the rest of Holy Week, is so incredibly important. For God sent Jesus to earth and Jesus lived a pure and holy life. He suffered as we suffer. Dude got thirsty. He sweat in labor under the sun. He knew what it meant to be tired. He knew what it meant to ache. He understood what it meant to be sick and to feel weak. He humbled himself and became man. God became man that he might live the hard life that we live here on earth so that we can't say that God doesn't understand what we go through. He lived it. This was before the internet, high def, flat screen TVs, transportation that can take us across the world in hours, air conditioning and chairs that recline. He lived it. And he was tempted as we are tempted. He was tempted in ways that we can't begin to comprehend being tempted. He had the power to change every circumstance for his own benefit and he resisted. So that he might go through the things that we go through and experience the harshness of human existence. Jesus did all of this, but where we complain and flail and ask God why he lets the things happen that he lets happen, Jesus did not. He endured all of the pain of human life, and he did it willingly, and he did it perfectly. But we don't stomach perfection, do we? If someone looks too good to be true, we decide that they must be. We don't like it when others are better than us, when they know more than we do. When we find people like that, we do everything we can to, to tear them down. And so Jesus was betrayed. And he was convicted, sent to death at a rigged trial. He carried a cross up a hill. And on that hill, he was nailed to that cross. And there at Calvary, Christ became sin for us. He was perfect. But there on the cross, Jesus became all of the flaws that we have, all of the failures that we've ever committed were put upon his shoulders and the wrath of God 
for all our failings, for all the times that you and I and all of the world have fallen short. All of that, all of God's wrath was poured out on Christ. He bore the consequences for the sin of the world and there on that cursed tree, he died for them, paying for them. But Jesus did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And miracle of miracles, when we believe in him, when we believe in our need for his death on our behalf, and when we believe in the truth and the power of his resurrection, then an incredible and amazing thing happens. Through faith, the righteousness of Christ is given to us. Not through works, not through actions, not because we deserve it or we've earned it. It's all through faith and through faith that God himself gives us. Do you feel God calling you? Do you feel his pull on your life? That's him wanting relationship with you, wanting you to be with him, wanting you to be covered in the righteousness of Christ and then shaping us and molding us and forming us to be more like Jesus. How can we call Jesus' entry into Jerusalem triumphant? This is why. Not because it led to his death, but because of what his death and his resurrection mean for us. This is the triumph that we need, Christ's triumph on our behalf. The crowd did not realize how their calls of Hosanna, save us, protect us, would be answered. The answer did not meet their expectations, for their expectations were not high enough. Jesus didn't come to save us from the life and oppression of this earthly plane. Our time here is temporary. No, Jesus came to save us for the life that is eternal. Church, friends, are our expectations high enough? Are we looking for a God that will save in the present and for a time? Or are we ready for a God that saves forever? I'm thankful for a God that brings comfort in the pain of the present. And I'm thankful for a God that is powerful enough, gracious enough, merciful enough, and worthy enough to save forever. To save for eternity. This is our God. Let us rest in Christ, let us know that our calls of Hosanna do not fall on deaf, ear, deaf ears and let us rejoice in the wonders and the works that Christ has done on our behalf, knowing that there are things on earth that will let us down, that will not meet our expectations. But God, when it comes to God, church, do we have our expectations high enough? What a fantastic, loving, gracious, merciful, powerful, and amazing God we serve. Amen.